Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. We see patients all the time, probably every day, who, more than any drug or cure, just want an explanation for their symptoms, to understand why they feel the way they do. But giving an explanation isn't necessarily straightforward. Often we're not sure. We might worry about how the explanation might go down, or we get sidetracked by all the other priorities of the consultation. Or maybe we just can't remember at that moment in time. In today's episode, we've enlisted the help of the king of consultation skills, Roger Neighbour, to help us with our explanations, and hear the patient perspective from the BMJ's patient editor, Amy Price. I'm Tom Nolan, uh, GP and uh, clinical editor for the BMJ, and uh, joined as usual by uh, Jenny and Navjoy. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. And Navjoy, hi. Hi, I'm Navjoy Larder, a clinical editor and locum GP in London. So, yeah, hi. So we're going to talk about explanations today. Um, Navjoy, I think you're quite a good explainer. What, what do you think? Sorry, I'm making a face because I, that isn't something <laughs> Is that I would right? particularly dis- self-describe as one of my skills. But I definitely recognise that it's an important skill in um, for for GPs and probably something we spend quite a lot of our time doing. Um, the thing I feel I've spent a lot of time doing we're in um, March at the moment is um, explaining the duration of illness. I feel like that's a kind of perennial one. Okay. And... Um, people often seem surprised at how long it might take to recover from an upper respiratory tract infection, sinusitis, mm. that often that one takes longer. So yeah, I recognize the value of, a, of an explanation. I don't know that I always do it in the way that I feel like would be good um, if I don't know, like yeah. if I don't it's have like, the- It's terrible, like a, you, you start, you think, oh, I've got it. And then you, you start giving the explanation then halfway through, you're just like, Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, totally I fizzles out. Or you yeah, pick yeah. an analogy that just crumbles immediately. Oh, yeah, or yeah, yeah all manner of things that can go wrong. <laughs> yeah. do, you, have you, do, you, do you ever listen to In Our Time on Radio 4? I do, yeah. It's really boring, isn't it? But <laughs> I love Melvin Bragg. <laughs> do you know this, Jenny? You know Melvin Bragg? No. It's, no. it's a really kind of like um, old-fashioned kind of his, history programme on, on the radio. But uh, anyway, once they were talking about... Um, ancient Rome and they said the main purpose of doctors at that time was as prognosticians I always remember that like was they didn't have any cures or anything but they people valued them as people who knew how long things would take to get better or whether they would yeah well yeah, I think there's there's something to that isn't there there's still value in that now yeah so but anyway, hopefully um... we can make people better as well <laughs> yes uh, Jenny what about you are you an <laughs> explanation fan I try I mean I try to be um, I, I think that, I, I think that, you know, the times when I've got positive feedback from patients that has meant the most to me has been when they've said, oh, I, I understand now, or that was a really good explanation or, you know, that that's always very nice to mm-hmm. hear, you know, much more than, Hey, that medicine you gave me really helped. I'd much rather know that I explained something uh-huh. well, but I also think I it's really easy for me to get too much in my head and be, for lack of a better word, like too cerebral about things, like always kind of wondering if the explanation is at the correct level mm. for the patient. 
Um, and so I'm often kind of left wondering at the end of a consultation, like, did that just go completely mm. over their head? And probably it did. Um, I think I think it is really challenging to kind of make sure when you're pressed for time that what you're saying is landing. Yeah, it's hard, that, isn't it? Like how how you, it's, it can go over the head, but also you can also be patronizing by being really like, mm-hmm. you know, a really, well, I want to say, man, I think we should just get the word mansplaining out there because... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> It is really difficult. I find that that bit really hard. The kind of you know we're taught to check understanding, yeah. check in with patients, but actually that I find that incredibly mm. difficult to do to sort of do do well and do in a way as you say that doesn't come across as patronising. Like oh, oh, did that make sense? Or mm-hmm. you know, just doesn't sound. I don't just feel like a total. <laughs> <laughs> but it's hard, right? Because on the one hand, you know, you you want to make sure that it's clear and that it acts you know, offers an actual explanation. But on the other hand, you can't dumb it down because people can tell if you do or if you're kind of brushing it off. That's also obvious. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I've started doing, and I don't know if it is good or actually if it even gets at this issue, is to kind of share my thinking quite a lot. And um, that's been something I've sort of done more Mm. over recent years compared to like the earlier um and that i found has been really good as it it's not really explaining it's more just kind of outlining my thinking and again i, I have no idea of like how, how it's landing with people but it seems to kind of help get kind of why we're doing what we're doing and um what how to sort of how a patient might want to make a decision from there so that's not quite an explanation but it's kind of a Maybe that's just a, an aspect of shared decision making. I don't know, but that that seems to kind of help. Um, and we're going to hear more about that in one of our interviews today, which is great. Okay, so a few years ago, I was, I was working for another journal and trying to get a, a little series off the ground called Great Explanations. A little sort of Dickens yeah, nice um, pun, but uh, didn't didn't get anywhere. But I managed to dig out some of the the things I was working on. Um, they're not all that brilliant and that's maybe why it didn't work out but um should I I give a a few examples Mm -hmm. um uh so one was about tears and crying um being as a a physical manifestation of how you feel Mm. and using that analogy with with people who are perhaps having somatization or other um physical um or medically unexplained physical symptoms um do you want me to say one that I can think of yeah yeah go you go you go yeah um Sometimes when I talk with people about getting help with mental health issues, if people are reluctant or if people kind of say that they're nervous or maybe their family won't like the idea of them seeing a psychiatrist or or a counselor, sometimes I try to use an analogy to like a kind of physical injury. Um, So I'll say something like, you know, if you get in a car accident and you have this huge event that happens to you and you break bones or you have, you know, physical injuries, no one would think twice about sending you to a hospital where you'd have, you know, surgery to repair whatever injuries or a cast put on your broken bone. Like no one would think twice about that. And in the same way, we don't think twice about making sure you get the help you need for an event that's hurting you in somewhere, somewhere else in your body. Um, Hmm. So sometimes I think analogies can be helpful. 
I don't know if that's ever convincing, though. It's hard, isn't it? It's, and then you're checking, you're watching their reaction carefully mm-hmm. to see how it's gone down. Uh, I don't know. I think that mental health and physical health one is often, uh, particularly when people are in the grips of, um, you know, feeling, uh, you know, of some mental health crisis where often they're very down on themselves. I think that that can be really helpful just to um, help people, you know, maybe explain that, you know, you're not wasting time or, you know, it is necessary. Yeah, you go. But I was thinking about one explanation that I heard, uh, not medicine related, that um, was an example of something that really, I don't know, like clarified something for me or simplified something for me, um, which I can share with you now, even though it's not to do with medicine. That'd be great. Um, Just to illustrate, I guess, the, the power of a good explanation for me. And it was about, um, I was listening to a podcast um, where the guest was um, Kate Mann, who's um, an author um, and academic who studies um, misogyny and sexism. Um, And she was talking about what we get wrong about misogyny. And I think um, one of the things that is one of those kind of things that often come up when, you know, if, if you're describing someone as misogynist, people often think of it as, you know, driven by hatred for women or, you know, a, a dislike for women. Um, but what she explained, which I found really helpful, was that that's not what misogyny is. You should think of misogyny as the words she used were, as the law enforcement arm of the patriarchy, there to keep in check um, this system that advantages kind of what we're used to with, with men, typically, you know, um, a society that's dominated by men. And so she said misogyny tends to rear its head just to keep that in check, to keep women in check, to keep women in their place. And so it, it doesn't, it's not always driven by hatred. And that, and that explains sometimes why you can have women being misogynistic or you can have, mm. you know, misogyny directed um towards uh like mothers and that sort of thing you know these aren't sort Mm. of active targets of um hatred so (laughs) i don't know if i've explained that very well but that that was one of those explanations which really kind of conceptually cleared something up for me um Mm. yeah good but not medical that's really helpful though i agree that's that's a really interesting way to think about it Mm. yeah thanks subject That, that that's a really interesting explanation um and a really good one, but obviously the three of us aren't so so good at the medical <laughs> explanations. Yeah, um, some help there. Yes, and and but fortunately we have got some help in in the, the form of um, uh, Roger Neighbour, who um, I think probably my, most listeners will will know about, um, having written um, some of the very influential te- uh, textbooks or books about consultation models and. Um, including which in, which cover the power of explanations. Uh, J- Jenny, um, you spoke to, to Roger. How was it? Yeah, it was lovely. I, it was really great speaking to him. And we had a really interesting conversation about the value of an explanation, uh, how we can make our explanations more effective, what types of things to look out for, and also um, kind of when an explanation uh, might not go so well. So that'll be coming up right after this message from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. 
Medical Protection is always here for you with expert medico legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations, and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks, and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. My name's Roger Neighbour. I'm now a retired GP. Um, and apart from spending 30 years seeing patients, um, I've written various books about doctor-patient communication and I was president of the College of GPs for three years. And I now just spend my retirement mouthing off at people like today. <laughs> oh, well, to our great privilege and benefit. Thank you so much. Um, we have been thinking a lot about this issue of explanation and how much a great explanation could potentially help a patient in distress, even if we can't wave a magic wand and cure a condition or make a symptom go away, we might be able to provide some solace uh, in explaining what's going on so that we kind of take the mystery element out of a disease process. And I wonder if we could just start really at the beginning for you, what does a great explanation consist of? <laughs> um, I'm smiling, Jenny, because you know, you're inviting me to give a great explanation of what a great explanation <laughs> is. Um, Touche. And <laughs> having thought about it, I, I suppose it's one that gives the other person uh, the information that they either want or need, neither more nor less, um, and and give it to them in a way that they can make the best use of it. And so that, I mean, there's various bits in that that we need to unpack, like the difference between wanting information and needing information. Um, and there's the issue then of, of whose benefit are you doing the explaining for and, and what it means to make the best use of it. But it's to, it's to do with trying to have the maximum effect and to meet the... The, the most important or the or the, or the most most pressing uh, information needs that the other person has. How, how's that for starters? I think that's really helpful, and I I like the f way that it's really about the type of information, the kind of information that you know the other person needs or wants. I do quite a lot of teaching these days with young doctors preparing for the college exam, and some of them faced with the need for an explanation will just to kind of do a knowledge dump. They will disgorge everything they know about topic A, and you can almost hear the patient's eyes glazing over. Uh, I think one of the most helpful things that I ever came across in this area was done by a chap called Cecil Hellman, 
who died a few years ago, who was, an, who was, a, who was a GP, but also an anthropologist. And he was interested in, in people, in how people behaved and thought when they got ill. And he reminds us that when anybody gets any kind of health problem, there's a number of questions that form in their minds, which are their priority information needs. They want to know what's happened, you know, what actually has gone wrong. They want to know why it's happened. They want to know why it's happened to them. They want to know why it's happened right now. They want to know what would what would happen if you did nothing about it. You know, what would be the natural history? Would it get better? Will it kill them? And so on. And last but not least, they want to know what to be done about it. And those those are people's priority information needs. And whatever else we tell mm. people, we need to make sure that we cover those bases. And... Um, I think in, in, in terms of, um, of, of time management, I mean, the, the law of diminishing returns operates, doesn't it? I mean, I mean, we flatter ourselves if we think that patients remember more than about 10 or 20% of what we say anyway. <laughs> and and, and, and most, yeah. most of that is, is what we say first or, or, or affects mm -hmm. them most deeply. So the, uh, the amount of, of retention um, tails off very, very rapidly. So in terms of how one delivers the message, I think the first thing we have to do is to make sure that whatever else we do, we, we, we give the patient enough information and in a way that they can handle, in effect, so, so that they can live comfortably with the knowledge. But I think um, it's often with, 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 uh, with, with complicated information, less is more. Mm. If, if you can get the important bits Short, express shortly, it's much better than giving something comprehensive and wordy, as I'm now doing now, so I better shut up. <laughs> well, well, I was actually just cringing to myself about um, <laughs> so many of these things and recognizing um, where I tend to get it wrong. I think I probably also err on the side of a knowledge dump too frequently. And so I wonder, you know, we've been having this conversation, assuming, of course, <laughs> that we actually know what's going on and can offer a cogent explanation. Um, how how should we approach a situation when um, patients want an explanation or are asking for an explanation around symptoms that we ha can't explain or don't know what's going on? Like about 90% of the time, you mean that sort of thing? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think honesty is the best policy. I think it's... Um, Certainly, it doesn't work to try to bluster your way out of it and to, and to talk pseudoscience and just to try to sort of uh, blarney, blarney on. That that doesn't help. Patients can see through, can see through that just as readily as we can when 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 the car salesman is trying to hoodwink us. Um, <laughs> I, I personally, I, I, I'm 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 a, a great advocate of thinking out loud of do of of letting the patient hear what's going through one's mind saying, uh, I can quite understand why that's an issue. And I'm sitting here thinking, I don't know what the answer to this is. But let me tell you what I do know. I know this and I don't know that. Um, mm. But what I do know is that work is being done on, in other words, to think one's thoughts out loud. And I don't think ev even if a lot of that, that kind of monologue or that thinking aloud is about one's own ignorance, I don't think that undermines trust. I, th I think mm. patients... Uh, are much more accepting of our fallibilities. They know they know that perfectly well. They know that we haven't got every, got the answer, and I think it's actually much more reassuring to know that you're in the hands of a doctor who doesn't mind sharing with you, rather than to feel that you're in the hands of somebody who might well be be, be, bluff, be bluffing you. So I, I I don't think provided provided you do it in a in a reasonably confident sounding way. It doesn't sound too pathetic. Well, I don't know. I don't know. That's pathetic. But it's perfectly possible to say we don't have the answer to this yet. 
in a confident tone of voice that does not undermine trust. I think actually it cements it rather than the other. Well, it's really interesting that you say that because, you know, actually one of my one of my other questions was, um, you know, how to approach that situation when you don't know without the patient thinking you're hopeless. But it sounds like kind of being honest and trying to uh, at least talk about what is known and what's not known with some kind of confidence can help. I think so. Give the I mean, to, there is a sense in which general practice is a performance art as much as everything else, in the sense that the way you deliver your contribution to the patient's well-being, the way you, de- you deliver it is, uh, is, uh, is, is or can be as important as actually what you give them. And, uh, and and to be honest about the situation, say, look, this 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 is this is where we are with this at the moment. We don't have the answer. Um, I'll tell you what I do know, and I'll tell you what I don't know. And if I found out more, I'll tell you. I'll come back and tell you on another occasion. I don't think that undermines confidence at all. That's very reassuring to me. <laughs> um, just kind of thinking again about this idea of explanation as being in some way therapeutic. Are we depriving a patient of something if we can't explain it, whether because of our own fund of knowledge or because the research isn't there? That's interesting, isn't it? Um, I I certainly uh, agree with your premise that explaining things can be therapeutic because it takes away that fear of the unknown to to, to some extent. Um, But whether whether not explaining is depriving someone, I think in a way you, you, you have to be willing to be led by the patient. I mean, we're all, all GPs are used to interpreting facial expression, listening between the lines, uh, watching body language. You can tell when somebody is happy with what you're saying and or not happy with what you're saying. Um, and uh, so I think th- th- those are the ways I think in which we can pace ourselves or, or um, regulate the speed and the depth at which we, we explain things is really just by um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a truism, I know, but, it, but, but truisms are by definition true. Most of what we, get, what we need in order to pace our contributions to the patients, we can get from reading the patient's responses, which I think you were asking earlier about, about, about how we can make sure that patients have understood our explanations. The answer is just mm. watch the patient and see. Watch the patient's face and listen to what they say. I, I, I would say, on the other hand, that we, um, it's one of the things that's, that's drummed into young doctors, isn't it? Check the patient's understanding, make sure they've understood. And there are some really ungainly, clumsy ways of doing that, of which the mm. worst is to say to a patient, what are you going to tell your spouse about this when you get home? Which is so patronising, I cringe every time I hear it. So but, many ways, yeah. yeah but um, <laughs> but that, but that's that there are better ways than than that. I think. Um, I think it's a common way to do it is just to say to the patient, "Have you got any questions?" That's fine, um, but that only allows the answer yes or no. Um, and um, put on the spot like that, a nervous patient will be tempted to say no when they actually would like quite like to say yes. So I think I think a, a, a better way of doing that is to say to a patient, I'm sure you've got some questions, what would you like to ask me? Mm. Which makes the assumption that they've got some questions so they don't have to, they don't have to pretend that they don't. So I think that's, that's, it's a subtle change of words, but I think the message is different. Have you got any questions? It makes you sound clearly hoping for the answer, no. Yeah. Whereas to say, what questions do you have for me? 
implies that I know you've got some and I'm, and I'm available to help you with them. I think it's, it's a small linguistic point, but I think lots, lots of things in, in general practice do turn on nuances like that. A final question. If someone comes to you with an explanation that is clearly wrong, is there any utility in correcting them? I think that there aren't many problems in general practice, he said, pontificating horribly, that a bit of thinking aloud won't get you out of. So to be able to say to, to that sort of patient, you probably saw my face fall when you, when, you, when you produced that bit of paper, let me explain why. It's just that you seem to, you've, you've been told this, whereas I'm sitting here thinking that. And actually put, putting your cards on the table that way, I think, will, and, uh, and explain, just telling the patient you know, what, what you're going through. Or, or, or what, what difficulties their behaviour is causing you, or what awkwardness has arisen because of something that they've said. Um, if you if you can do that politely and in a way that doesn't sound um, rude or or, or uh, dismissive, I think the, the the discussion that flows from that will normally work its way towards a, towards a compromise. It, it, it's been my experience talking to groups of doctors of different ages that the older, the, the further people get into their careers the much more relaxed they are about letting the patient see the working. Mm. It's, it's, it's young doctors, understandably, you know, because they are uncertain of themselves and are, and are finding their feet professionally, are, are, are a bit more nervous of letting the patient see the workings. Um, but uh, if you t- the further you get into, 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 into any kind of medical career, I think the, the happier people are, doctors are with letting the patient hear, hear, hear how it is. So thinking out loud, Natchoy, that was what you were saying earlier. Yeah, I'm feeling quite validated. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I must I must have heard him say that sometime. sometime. Yeah. But definitely, I mean, it definitely chimes what he was saying about, you know, it becoming something that you feel more comfortable with as you progress mm. and feel a bit more kind of secure in what you're doing. Um, but I think probably, you know, the examples he was giving about, you know, um, I think he, he his examples were probably a step above kind of the the level I'm doing it at, which is just kind of thinking about management, you know, thinking my thought processes around a particular mm. treatment and not so much around, I don't know, the feelings or sort of subtext of what's going on. So, uh, yeah, so I feel like there's, I, I can perhaps um, develop that further. Yeah. Well, the conflict, it's, I think it's a, a useful tool really useful. to manage conflict yeah. in the consultation, can't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, where he says, you know, you probably saw my face draw. You know, that's that's kind of a really useful little nugget to keep mm. in mind for, mm. for when when that might be needed. And uh, most of, something like most most of what we need you can get from watching the patient's response. I I, uh, I mean that's true, isn't it? Something that's something you just pick up again, isn't it? Over time, which helps yeah. with the confidence and uh, yeah, yeah. Roger Neighbour is probably the most pivotal thing he's done for my kind of consultation style was very early on. Um, actually, I, I probably was a trainee when I went to a course that he did on consultation models. And he said, never, ever type while you're with a patient, you know, save all your typing for after the patient has gone. And I, I, I dutifully have not done that kind of since I went to that um, training day. And you just think like the number of things you can miss by not you know you you do really need to be looking at the patient while they're talking it makes a makes a big difference but um 
not, not easy these to days do. On, on, the, on the phone type away yeah 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 <laughs> even but even that I, I've realized oh, sorry this is like me going off on a tangent about how slow I am in telephone consultations but I find it hard to type while I'm talking on the phone even but don't don't tell the, the practices that employ me because just be like how inefficient I am I don't know that that's inefficient can I just say that I mean if I didn't type things it would go literally in one ear and out the other. I feel like patients come through so quickly by the end of a session, let alone a full day. Yeah. I feel like I am spinning. And I just could not remember any of the details if I wasn't typing it. And it's not because I'm not listening. I, I really think I am listening, trying to think, okay, what's going on? What What do I need to check for? What do I need to ask about? But I, I just, I, I feel like we, the volume of people coming through, all those details would blur. Like, how do you, how do you do that if you're not typing while they're talking? No, I was just going to say that as soon as the consultation's finished, I'll stop. Or if I've sent them off to, you know, if there's a break for some reason, then I'll type. Because the sort of slightly annoying thing for me is that that typing is often quite a useful thinking time as well, when I'll be like, oh yeah, I need to think of X, Y, and Z. So if I do it after I've sent mm-hmm. them on their way, that can be a bit annoying as well sometimes. I was just thinking it sort of depends how, how long your notes are when you type, but uh, yes. know, it's, mm, yeah. patient, yeah, well, I, won't, I won't say what my notes are. Um, I said that the, <laughs> I, 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 was t- I was typing as t- whilst listening to a patient the other day, but I did, I think to my credit, hopefully, um, it was because they, it was like, you know, I've been to see the doctor so many times about this problem and, I'm not getting anywhere. And actually I, I said to them, I'm going to type as I go along here because I want to make sure I get I get all this down oh. sort of thing. So I was quite pleased with that. And that they, so I think that might be the exception. I'm hoping Sharing to, to Roger thinking. Neighbors rule. Yeah. It's yeah. a good explanation, Tom. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, any other things from, from that? I was just going to say that one thing that has stuck with me, well, several things, but kind of, Remembering that less is more in terms of an explanation and trying to focus on those priority of needs. I think that's not something where I am right now is not kind of conscientiously thinking about, you know, the different things that they need explained. It's not in a kind of like a structured way in my head like that. Um, So that's kind of something I want to think about. But Mm -hmm. this idea as well that general practice is a performance art I think is such a kind of interesting way to think about it and something I definitely resonate with. Like there is a kind of performative nature to engaging and putting yourself forward and being present and being completely focused on the situation, which is not to say that it's false, but just that it's this level of engagement, which is really kind of specific to that context. Um, I don't know. It just really resonated with me. I feel like I have to kind of mentally prepare myself for that every Mm. time I go to see Mm. patients. It is a bit of a dance sometimes, isn't it? We're sort of performing in our roles. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah. I think Mm -hmm. probably why it's so exhausting for for introverted types like myself. It's like, oh. (laughs) Uh. I think the other... um, Sorry, I do want to respond. I'm an introvert as well, Tom, and I, I <laughs> just laughing at me. relate. <laughs> no, I w- no, I wasn't. I, I, I was realising I was about to 
just go on to something else but I didn't want to do that without kind of acknowledging what you said which I I totally feel as well like I I, I definitely can relate big time to that and um, I was just mm-hmm. going to pick up on something else from um that interview with uh Roger um where he talked about trust which I think uh and I was just thinking you know what is the point like why are we even thinking about what the point is of an ex- explanation and actually I guess I guess there, you know, we've talked about the various like therapeutic value it might have or just kind of information giving purpose it has, but also the aspect of trust that comes into it as well. And once again, I'm left feeling that all of this is much easier when you have a relationship with your patients and you know them and you kind of have an awareness of their information style and their their own kind of, you know, you, you can try and suss that out within a consultation, but when we have some level of understanding and trust already, I think it's much, much um, easier. 100% agree with you. I think the we're so fortunate in so many ways to be able to build trust over time uh, so that kind of you already have this foundation and this ability to kind of explain things over time and revisit things and build on that trust. But I also spoke with Amy Price, one of our patient editors, and she said some really interesting things about the impact of explanations on trust. Yeah, let's hear it. Uh, So let's have a listen to my conversation with Amy. Hi, uh, I'm Amy Price, and I'm a research editor with the BMJ for the Public and Patient Partnership. And I am also a senior research scientist at Stanford School of Medicine. Uh, and really importantly, I'm also uh, I'm also a patient. I wonder if we could start with just kind of your take on the value of an explanation in a clinical encounter? What does that feel like? It's everything. So to me, the value of an explanation builds trust. It meets assumptions and expectations, reduces assumption and uh, meets expectations. And it's important. For me, it's, it's really important. And I actually won't proceed on any medical procedure or diagnostic without an explanation. It also helps me uh, as a patient to know where the provider is in terms of and their knowledge on the current evidence. That's so interesting and I really appreciate your honesty <laughs> with that. Have you ever had an encounter where a doctor wasn't able to explain something to your satisfaction and it kind of raised a flag for you about their kind of level of knowledge in an area? Yes. Uh, Yes. I I had sustained a brain injury Mm -hmm. and I wanted a full uh, neuropsychological Mm follow-up. And I, I think they wanted to give me a psychological exam instead. And I, what I wanted was the neurological of the bio, uh, biological underpinnings of what happened to me so that I could make sense of it. Mm-hmm. And 
um, when I asked them, they basically said, well, this is something we don't normally discuss with patients. <laughs> and so I said, well, um, this isn't normally the kind of doctor that, uh, that I work with. So, and I just got up and left, me and my husband. And um, I said, you know, thank you very much for your time, but I don't think we're well suited for each other. So let's just both save ourselves a miserable time and move on. I'm like, sorry that you had what was kind of an unsatisfactory encounter. I'm also like over here pumping my fists for you for kind of being... <laughs> empowered and uh, clear enough on what was important for you in that relationship to just kind of say like, no, this is not going to work. And also I'm like mortified on the part of the doctor because I can totally imagine myself not being kind of uh, up to date in a, in a specialized area and kind of um, not quite having the most up-to-date information. It's hard to stay up to date on, on all the topics across general practice, but um, I think that that really does get back to your point about the kind of value of an explanation being everything. And sometimes the explanation is, I don't know. And as an honest explanation, um, that's 100% okay. So it's, I don't know, but maybe we could try this is perfectly fine or I don't know, and I know the evidence may say something contrary to this, but this is what's worked for me in my practice. And those are perfectly acceptable uh, explanations, and they also do build trust. Um, I wonder if you could say a little bit about when an explanation might not be enough. So we sure. kind of have been thinking about this idea of, you know, when somebody has a troublesome symptom or a medical issue that is affecting the quality and function of their life, how sometimes all we can offer is an explanation or a suggested explanation, but we can't take the symptom they're experiencing away and we don't know or, or maybe can't solve it. Can you talk again about when an explanation might not be enough? Oh yeah, actually that's really important. When an explanation, uh, when an explanation doesn't solve a problem um, or it's not enough, I think that's when the relationship be between the patient and the provider um, is so critical because what you really want as a patient or what I really want as a patient is I don't want someone to give up on me and walk away. Mm -hmm. I want them to value me even if I'm failing or I don't necessarily meet their explanations. And I would also want for them to have that same relationship with me. Because just because what we did failed doesn't mean we're not a team. Um, that is so interesting. And I wonder if we could expand a little bit on this. So in your mind, what is a really good explanation? What, is that, what does that look like? What does it feel like? Oh, well, my favorite explanation is I had to have um, cataract surgery early because of the brain damage, because my eyes didn't react to light properly. And mm -hmm. anyway, that's a long story. But when I went to Morrisfield Eye Clinic, they 
explained everything. They explained the machines they used, they explained the kind of anesthetic, uh, they explained exactly what they're doing or when they're doing it. They ask, are you comfortable with this? And they ask the patients, do you want to know about this? Because some people don't, they just want, mm -hmm. they just want um, the treatment done, they want to be asleep and they want to wake up well. Uh, and then they would share um, the risks of certain procedures and why I was a good candidate or not a good candidate, what they had mm -hmm. to um, test along the way, what was the hope of full recovery and what would happen, you know, if things went wrong. And so um, to me, that was excellent. That was, that's my favorite. Mm -hmm. um, and I, can you say more about kind of the different levels of information that different patients want. Um, it sounds to yeah. me like you're a person who wants to have more information as opposed to less and other people, as you mentioned, who really don't want to kind of get into the details. And how can doctors do a better job of titrating our information to where the patient is? So I think that um, body language, watching body language is really important because mm -hmm. when people don't want to hear anymore, they withdraw, they withdraw with their eyes and they withdraw with their bodies. So um, it's important to watch those signals, but also to ask them. So uh, for example, they would ask me, do you really want to know how this machine works? Do you really want to see this while we're operating in you? And I would say, yes. And um, some would say, no patients ever wanted to see this before. And I said, well, I want to see it. And then they would say, like, okay, that's interesting. And then they would arrange, you know, to, uh, to make that happen. Now, my husband, on the other hand, um, he would have said, like, and he had the surgery. He said, he said, Amy, I didn't ask them anything. I didn't want to know. I just wanted um, to be asleep. And they tried to explain it to me. And they said, do you want to hear more? And I said, no, just please, you know, uh, look after <laughs> right? right? And, and, and uh, so that was, you know, that was important to him because for some people, too much explanation creates anxiety for them mm -hmm. and they feel responsible for that information. Sounds really good. Nice. It's echoed a lot of what um, what Roger Neighbour was saying as well. There's a lot of kind of synchronicity between um, what they were both saying. Yeah, I found that reassuring too. The sense that what we seem to think is important from our side in terms of kind of maintaining and kind of focusing on our longitudinal relationship, thinking about trust and being okay with saying we don't know or sharing our thinking aloud as opposed to that horrendous thing that someone said to her like oh well, we don't really we don't really offer that to, or like we don't really offer that to patients mm. like well oh we, yeah. we don't really explain that to people okay can you remember the last patient who walked out on, on you you both <laughs> someone walked out on you <laughs> of course yeah um, the last one yeah exactly. that's why I, that's why i was asking like Roger Neighbors said, don't, don't just ask, you know, do you have any questions? I was, I was trying to say, <laughs> I was trying to ask you. Um, yeah, I've kind of few, few, that happened a few times. 
I'm sure I have as well. I just can't remember them. <laughs> anyway, um, what, what I loved about that was um, I've written it down here somewhere. Um, oh, like the the parallels that it's not just about explaining like the con- the conditional diagnosis, is it? It's um, it's almost like the signposting of uh, the consultation or the the, the procedure. Um, I guess that's another thing, isn't it? It's um, it's useful to to help the patient. You know, okay, we're, we're gonna we're gonna examine you in a moment. I just want to find out more about this, and or I'm gonna see you again in a couple of weeks. But um, let's let's talk some more about blah blah blah. So yeah, I like, I like that uh, mm. thought as well. Mm-hmm. A question that occurred to me while listening to that was um to what extent do you supplement any of your explanations with like other materials like signposting to online resources i don't know if we've talked before about patients recording consultations as well so they can hear or watch them back later um do do you do that much? i feel like i'm not as good at that as i should be i feel like every um well to work on the articles we work on it's always and and offer written information or um, I mean, it's easier to do nowadays because we've got the SMS messaging systems that, that you can just mm. quickly send a link. So I, I do I do, do that a fair amount, account. actually. But um, yeah. I feel like there's, there's probably something, a lot more out there that uh, could be using. Yeah, because this point about how much is actually remembered from the consultation and wanting to make sure mm-hmm. that what actually is remembered is, is kind of a- accurate. Um, uh, I think that's really important. I think it's probably something where we may not we may not sort of twig or hear about that side mm. of it. So I think Roger Nabel was getting at that as well when he said that, you know, the way we sort of probe to ask questions as well, we mm. should try and get at that somehow. Um, yeah. we, we've got an article in, in the pipeline about um, writing in the notes for the patient. Um, I suppose that's another means of... Um, you know, if the patient has access to their notes, and you you can yeah. put things in there to to help them look back later and remember the things you you discussed. Um, yeah. So I think that's another interesting element of that. Yeah. 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 We had a several webinars on that topic as well at the, towards the end of last year, just looking at. Um, patient access to their mm-hmm. own medical records. And I know it's an area that a lot of the patient editors have been working on. Um, and, and countries kind of more and more adopting that system. Um, but I actually did, I had asked Roger Neighbor about patients recording their own consultations. Uh, unfortunately, we ran out of time with the interview, but um, he he seemed to be in favor just in terms of whatever patients want to do to scaffold their understanding. And Amy mentioned as well, you know, definitely use decision aids that are there, use kind of the other tools that we have for explaining things, be it a visual representation or another kind of, you know, uh, resource, but anything that you can offer to a person to kind of help them reflect on the consultation is useful. And the last thing that I'll say that what she mentioned as well is that whenever possible to try to provide some information in advance of a consultation so that people have a chance to review it, do a first pass on their own, and then kind of formulate their questions before a visit. That was actually one of the projects that had been 
a contestant in the most recent BMJ Awards. Tom, do you remember this? Uh, where people were doing informed consent virtually mm-hmm. for cardiac procedures and then giving patients the opportunity to review the materials virtually and then come in for either an appointment or a teleconsultation so that they've already had a first go at the information and then can be more informed to ask further questions and um, the kind of post-intervention uh, evaluations were mm. quite good in terms of people expressing greater mm. understanding of the procedure and a greater feeling that their concerns and requests for information had been honored. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Yeah. So maybe we should be offering some kind of follow-up <laughs> after an explanation or or some space to ask questions if they crop up later Mm. Uh, and i suppose in a similar way we we can do the same thing for this podcast um you can go onto the show notes and we'll put some links there to some of the things we've been discussing today like those um webinars on on patient notes uh and the other thing we were thinking is if you've got your own great explanations that uh, you think other listeners would be interested in hearing about, uh, please uh, let get in touch. Uh, practice at bmj.com is our email address, and we'd love to hear from you with those. I think that's about all we've got time for this uh, episode, but uh, it's been really interesting to, to hear from Roger Neighbour and Amy Price. Thank you to, to both of them. And uh, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please uh, make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcast from. Um, also, give us a review, tell your friends, colleagues, uh, and uh, uh, tune in for our next episode in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, thank you, uh, Jenny. Good to, to see you. See you next time. Thanks, Tom. See you next time. And uh, bye, Navjoit. Thanks, Tom. Bye for now. Bye. Yes, uh, we'll see you in a couple of weeks' time. Bye for now.